Unlock the past and safeguard your memories with ScanMyPhotos.com. Here's our special promo code, GoDigital, to get a whopping up to 50% off your photo scanning order. Don't let your cherished moments fade away. Digitize them now with precision and care. Whether it's old slides, photos, or films, bring them into the digital age and relive those precious memories. This is an affiliate promotion, meaning we may earn a commission if you take advantage of this fantastic deal. Act fast, preserve your history, and save big with Go Digital at ScanMyPhotos.com. I'm Maureen Taylor, the photo detective. I really love family photographs, all of them, from the mystery images you find in shoeboxes and albums to the pictures you snap with your digital devices. No mystery is too small. A simple question about an image can lead to new stories of your ancestors. This means you can count on me to help you identify the people in them, offer solutions for preserving and organizing them, and yes, even guide you in the various ways to gather and share picture stories with your relatives. Welcome to The Photo Detective, where we cover historical image analysis, genealogy, and how to work with your family photo collection. These are very interesting times in which we live. Thankfully, my two guests are busy collecting and documenting our experiences in a project for the state of Rhode Island. Future generations won't guess what we're doing. They'll know by what they can find in the archive. So if you live here in the state of Rhode Island, you can participate. Anyone of any age can add material to the new Rhode Island COVID-19 archive. Pictures, stories, and video are all being collected. And the link to the archive is in the show notes. In this episode, we talk about the roots of this type of digital archive, and there is a term for it. It's called a rapid response archive, and one that saves our lived experiences. Perhaps you have one of these projects happening in your area. Believe it or not, it's a worldwide phenomenon. Joining me is Kate Wells. She has served as the curator of the Rhode Island Collections at the Providence Public Library since 2013. After over a decade as an archivist and librarian in university libraries, municipal record collections, and state historical societies across the country. She holds a Master of Arts in History and a Master of Library and Information Science from Simmons College. In her current role, she focuses on demystifying the experience of collecting and accessing historic materials through supporting community archives, outreach for creative use of archival collections, and utilizing metadata and semantics in access models. Her mission is to facilitate communication, inclusion, and connections to history in order to catalyze social justice and empowerment in communities and cultural heritage organizations. Becca Bender is the film archivist and curator of recorded media at the Rhode Island Historical Society. She holds a master's degree from New York University's Moving Image Archiving and Preservation Program, and she studied film production and Africana studies as an undergraduate at Vassar College. She's an active member of the International Association of Moving Image Archivists and part of a core group of professionals working to improve preservation of local television news collections across the United States. Prior to becoming an archivist, 
Becca worked for many years as a documentary archival producer on projects such as the Emmy-nominated PBS series Black America Since MLK and Still I Rise and Cancer, the Emperor of All Maladies. My guests today are Kate Wells, curator of the Rhode Island Collection at the Providence Public Library, and Becca Bender, who is the film archivist and curator of the recorded collection at the Rhode Island Historical Society. And these two women have joined forces to create something I think is pretty unique, which is the COVID-19 collection for the state of Rhode Island. So ladies, thank you so much for being on the Photo Detective Podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having us. And so how did you come up with this idea? Um, Well, uh, we were both actually independently working on something for our own institutions. um, And we're just each about to launch our initial sort of project, which was essentially, I think, for both of us, um, you know, creating a form for people to contribute some basic content. Um, about their experiences when a mutual colleague happened to run into Becca on a socially isolated walk (laughs) around the city and mentioned that I was working on this and Becca mentioned she was working on her version. And um, so we very quickly realized that joining forces would be far more efficient. Um, And uh, so, you know, given staff capacity while we work from home and remotely, especially with technology support and um, thinking also about the audiences we're, we're both um, in touch with and seeking to document, we thought one cohesive site and message to the public would make a lot more sense. So. I, I think it's a, a really wonderful thing that you've created because it unites all of us. It's not about the Rhode Island Historical Society versus the Providence Public Library because, you know, the, the memes all say we're all in this together and that's what you created something where we can all contribute. And so anyone can add a photograph to the archive. What other kinds of material can you, can you add? Um, So we're, we're really accepting any sort of digital object that people create. Um, At the moment, the submission types in the archive are photographs, Um, written text, which could come either in the form of a PDF or a Word document, or um, people can also type directly into the submission form itself. Um, We can also accept videos. We can accept audio recordings. We're going to be opening up soon. We're kind of trying to figure out how we can accept, um, really capture some of the web conversation that's going on since so much of what being in isolation and that experience is about is, is how we, how we communicate online, the memes that we're sharing with one another, the social media posts. So um, we're also kind of getting up and running to accept kind of social media and, um, and websites and YouTube videos and, and stuff like that as well. And this archive that you created, is there a model for it or is this something brand new? Is there some other collection that you both worked on online that gave you an idea of what this would look like? Well, neither of us have worked on a collection like this. So, <laughs> um, for both of us, it's brand new. Um, and actually, neither of our institutions have collected in this way either. So um, it's new for us personally, as well as 
for RHS and PPL. Um, but there is a model out there in the world um, for, it's sort of referred to as rapid response collecting. Um, and we've actually been really lucky. One of the um, people who is advising our project and has been working closely on our project team is Jim McGrath, who's a postdoc at Brown. Um, and his work with digital public history um, in the past, he was one of the core team members for the Our Marathon project, which was another rapid response archive uh, related to the Boston Marathon bombing. And so um, we're really lucky that we've had, we have somebody who has firsthand experience of having done this kind of work before, helping advise the project. Um, but also, you know, this is something I, I think archives literally around the world are all actually trying to simultaneously get up to speed in, in collecting this experience. So, um, you know, state by state, different, you know, sort of organizations are taking this on. Very often it's happening sort of library specific. Um, so I think we're one of a handful that is much more of sort of a statewide um, focus rather than sort of a very specific community uh, focus. Um, so there's a model we're following, but it definitely has been a pretty steep learning curve. Well, I always say Rhode Island is a great place to work on collaborative projects because we're so small. Right. We can do it. We know all the players. It's easy to collaborate. We don't have to drive hours to see someone, right? We drive <laughs> 45 minutes and we're on the other end of the state. So there are other states that are creating digital archives. There's, there's collections, um, you know, all around, all around this country, also internationally, um, that are collecting. I mean, one of, there's actually sort of one, I would say the biggest kind of catch-all collection um, is a similar platform to ours, um, which is that it's built in a, a platform called Omeka, and that's just called the COVID-19 Archive, uh, a journal. A journey in the year of a plague or something I'm blanking on the name of the of the project but that's actually pulling in um, stuff from all over the world um, who's and hosting? then it said that, sorry who's hosting that okay that's coming out of Arizona uh, a university in Arizona I believe hold on all right well people talk about how there will be or I think, and I've heard other people mention it as well, that this moment in time, that there'll be new things that come out of it. There'll be some creative, obviously, avenues, at, like that great writing program we have for, for the teens, right, Rhode Island, where now they're writing about their experiences during COVID-19, which is cool, and you have that material in the COVID-19 archive which is great as well. But I wonder, I think this is, this is one of those things that's coming out of a bad time, which is great. And as a family historian as a, and a historian in general, you know, the 1918 flu epidemic, families rarely talk about it. There are few photographs that I've seen about that point in time. And now that we know more about it, and there are all these books written about the 1918 flu epidemic, you realize how horrible it was. But that was so distant from our lives. And now we're living, we're living in that historical moment. Like what other kinds of things do you think about collecting? Are you thinking of collecting 
not just digitally, but artifacts as well, like some of the masks made at, down at Cretelier on, on uh, Hope Street in Providence. I think it's an interesting thing, right? So you think about like the 1918 epidemic, neither of our collections actually have anything that really represents the lived experience of what right. people went through. So I think part of it is the awareness of, um, you know, there's sort of in, in the midst of a crisis, it is quite hard to stop and take stock um, and think about, you know, making sure you document. Um, you know, I, I don't think that's top of mind for most people. Right. And yet at the same time, because of access to technology um, and technology tools, I think the ability to document is more democratically available than ever before. Um, and the ability for a wider variety of people to document. Um, so to get a really, the potential to get a really diverse set of experiences, um, you know, recorded is pretty um, amazing. Um, you know, I think though that uh, there's sort of a challenge when you're thinking about how do you interrupt what people are doing to just get through their day um, and say, hey, stop, wait, tell us about what this experience is like. Um, but I think people actually are, nat they naturally do that. They just don't necessarily think of the things that they're creating as historic items, right? So it's, it is the things like a, a viral meme, um, you know, that's getting created and shared and responded to every day, all the time, but people don't realize that actually could tell a story for the future about what this moment looks like. Um, or, you know, you're taking, you know, you, we're all doing Zoom calls with our families and to celebrate holidays or, you know, um, work meetings or school. So, you know, that alone is such a different exchange of how we're personally relating to each other. And it's not that hard with the technology to do a screen capture or record the actual conversation. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think it's just for us, it's thinking about how do we communicate to people that what's happening in their lives is really important. Um, both for now, because I, one of the things we've gotten feedback on is that as people look at the site, they are feeling less isolated. So like we're living in isolation, but it's a very shared experience. Mm -hmm. And so we've heard from a few people that as they have searched and browsed to the site, they thought, oh gosh, you know, like who knew, you know, intellectually, I get that everybody's going through this, but you know, I'm looking at photos in Little Compton or Westerly, and it's familiar to my experience in Providence, you know, it, it gives people a sense of commonality right now, um, but then also creates something substantial for the future. Mm. I think it's, a, the technology piece is a challenge because um, normally we're really used to trying to collect physical ephemera, <laughs> and there isn't that much. I mean, there are things like masks. Sadly, we are still like 1918, wearing fabric, homemade fabric masks, but, <laughs> um, you know, not too much has actually changed in 100 years, turns out. Um, but, um, well, most of it is digital, right? The, the restaurants that are offering takeout, that's something you could capture digitally and share in the archive. Um, some of the book groups are now virtual. Uh, actually, my husband's book group turned into a writing group and they wrote things about their COVID experience. And it's like, they really need that for the COVID archive. I was going to say, encourage yeah. him to donate. 
Yeah. Exactly. They really need to, to donate that material. I mean, it's so, it's such a key moment in our, in our lives. And, it, you know, the 1918 is, is almost like a black hole in, in a lot of ways. When you do the research, you don't always know what these people died of. And then you see that they died in 1918. And now it's like, oh, I wonder if they died from the flu. Um, I mean, yeah. I, I think it's also, it's interesting. There's things that I think wouldn't have occurred to me that would ever be problematic or hard to get, you know, things like, um, you know, the, we have had several submissions of empty toilet paper aisles at the grocery store. But um, thinking about, you know, how there was like this run on yeast because people were starting to bake again at home and you couldn't get yeast or flour for a couple of weeks in the grocery store, um, you know, or elastic because people are sewing again and making masks. Like these things that suddenly like become just changes in your daily life that it, if you don't document it, it would be easy to forget in the future. That, well, you know, oh gosh, there was, yeah, there was a time where we were so reliant on, you know, these things and, and suddenly they weren't available anymore. And what does that look like? Or um, the experience of, you know, uh, spraying your grocery bags down with, or deliveries with Lysol before you bring them in the house. Like, <laughs> these are all really amazing changes in our daily lives. Well, I live in a historic house and it's a Victorian. So this was, here in you know for a long time and the house had different purposes different parts of the house had different purposes so now when I go down in the basement I look and I think I wonder if that was like where they stored the canned canning materials or you know trying to maximize the amount of storage in my refrigerator just because oh I don't know the shortage this week is lettuce two weeks ago I couldn't get broccoli I was like how can I not get can I not get lettuce so I'm trying to maximize the storage in my refrigerator. I'm like, well, what do I really need to refrigerate? So I'm like, I'm online. I'm looking at my World War II cookbooks that I have. And I'm thinking, okay, well, we don't have yeast. What can I make without yeast? Uh, what do I not need eggs for? And we look back in previous generations, they, they give us some kind of, so I made a, a sort of root cellar down there, um, which hasn't really worked too well. Uh, but I think if it were colder, in the basement, it would, it would be better. Uh, so I, I see all of this as an opportunity for all of us, not only to preserve the present because it is the present that then becomes the past, but for all of us to look to the past and see how we can do things differently. Well, and I, I think, you know, as far as preserving preserving the present, which of course will become our history. I mean, I think, I think part of what's interesting about these kinds of rapid response collecting and, and particularly with this, the type of, of submissions we're seeing and, and the types of submissions we really want to see that we're soliciting is they also show off a real shift that's happened in the archival and library communities in the past, I would say 10 to 20 years anyway, right? Which is that, you know, so much of, so much of the, the original idea behind archives was, of course, to protect, you know, make sure that you're protecting the things that were made by the people in power that dictated how we, you know, how a government worked or how, you know, 
things that were obviously coming from a very top-down, generally a very top-down sort of perspective. And I think there's been a real shift in general in the library and archive world, um, which is to look, you know, much more at the kind of daily lived experience in general. I mean, my background, you know, I'm the, since I'm in, in moving image and sound recordings, um, for example, there's been a real interest in the past 20 years in home movies. And home movies, which never before were considered something that an archive should be preserving because, hey, it's just this one family's history. Whereas now we look to that and we say, wow, these home movies are showing us what it meant to live in Providence in the 1940s. What did it mean when you were a black family living in Providence versus a white family living in Providence? All of these kinds of things that they're telling us. So I think the idea of collecting the lived experience has become something that we view very differently. And, and this experience, you know, the, the COVID-19 pandemic being a real interesting, obviously global moment where the lived experience is in many ways shared all over the whole world and in many ways completely different depending on where you are. What are your resources? What is your government telling you? What, you know, all, all kinds of difference. But, um, but I think- Is it essential or not? Right. Um, you know, since so much of this is about what does it, what does it feel like right now? And I think that the idea of archiving, what does it feel like, I think is just sort of a new way of archiving. Um, and as Kate was saying before, because of the technology, which sort of allows for this democratization, we can actually ask that question now of people and we can get responses from all different kinds of people of different, you know, socioeconomic, racial backgrounds, ages. I mean, Kate and I have talked a lot about one of the things we love about this, where this specific archive is going in terms of, um, you know, who's contacted us to want to contribute for partners and such is um, that we're getting a lot of response from, from the younger, you know, from, from youth, right? And what is what does it mean to be doing distance learning, whether that's a teenager writing about their experience in the right Rhode Island collection, or we just connected in the past couple days with some second grade teachers who are having their students put together a kind of written time capsule of what do they want to remember about this moment. So I think, again, archives who, who frequently look to you know, adults for collecting, quite truthfully, and are not generally interested in the objects or the thoughts of, of the youth, like, that's a huge part of this experience. And this archive allows us to collect that as well. Mm -hmm. And it gives you an opportunity to collect, you know, if, uh, I know that all over the country, doctors are talking into their iPhones or phones and documenting what it's like to be on the front lines. And maybe we have some of that here happening here. It seems like I have seen some Rhode Island um, first responders doing interviews here and there. Maybe those things could be collected. On the website, you have this great guide to if you want to create your own personal archive, which could have nothing to do with COVID-19, or it could have a lot to do with COVID-19, depending on what you want to do with it. But I love your suggestions. Uh, take photos of the exteriors or closed signs of the shuttered businesses in your neighborhood. I'll be right on that for you guys. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of closed businesses. Record a nightly one-minute video update about your day. I mean, how did you come up with this list? What, 
I, I love the picture of your freezer. That's a good one. Well, I, we have to give credit. Um, that actually came from our, my colleague at PPL, Angela DeVeglia. Who, um, so Angela and I have been working um, just at PPL for the past year on um, providing sort of support to um, community archives in general. Mm-hmm. And so this is kind of coming out of that project, but then she tailor-made this, um, these sort of prompts for this, for us, for COVID. And she was really working, I think, um, sort of thinking a lot about the story core model mm-hmm. for oral history interviewing. Um, and so she was really thinking about um, coming up with sort of very specific prompts. Um, you know, I think a lot of people, when, when you sort of say like, well, document your experience, they're like, well, I don't know what that means. Um, and so giving people some very concrete examples of what that could look like. Um, you know, and, and in a variety of ways. So do you like writing? Here are some options. If you actually like drawing or, work, or think, documenting things visually, here's some other options. Um, you know, if you feel really comfortable with technology and you want to do some audio or video recording, there's several other things you could do. Um, and so really, Angela, I think, had worked really hard to come up with a, a variety of prompts which would, um, you know, help people think about their daily lives in sort of more concrete but more creative ways. So sometimes it's documenting the things that you take for granted and stopping for a minute and to think like, oh, yeah, what did I put in my pantry or freezer that is different because I can't shop as frequently? Um, You know, what does that look like? Or, um, you know, how one of the things I love that she put up was the idea of creating a nature log for wildlife that you see, you know, just in your direct um, sphere. And I like the idea that, you know, um, it's a way to sort of maybe pay attention to things that we often just don't see in our daily lives because we're in a moment that gives us an opportunity to sort of look a little bit differently at at the things that are just normally there. Well, Um, I love the StoryCorps model. You know, I just, I just love the whole idea of, people just telling their stories and using these prompts you can't just say this as you said you can't just say to someone tell me tell me about your life tell me about your COVID-19 moment that's hard to say but if you say have you taken any pictures of the neighborhood or these are it's almost like a task list of things that are Mm -hmm. that you can do because we're all distracted Mm -hmm. we're all we're all coping with this in different ways and we're all distracted so to have this list actually is pretty handy. <laughs> um, I will say, Becca, do you want to talk a little bit about how we envision this part of the sort of as we go on with the project, there are lots of sort of tweaks and upgrades we're trying to work on with the site. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about how you sort of see these guides morphing, changing? Yeah, growing? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah we uh, in in sort of our haste to get the site up, we, you know, we sort of were trying to find this balance between the site being far enough along to be easy to use and and understandable by people with the knowledge that it wasn't going to be perfect. It was going to take some time to get it exactly where we wanted it and we just wanted to get it up. Um, And the guide page is sort of one area where where we've been wanting to expand it a little bit in in part to to give people a little help um, with some of the maybe heavier technology lifts also. I mean, one... um, one thing as being the 
you know, again, dealing with moving image and recorded sound, I'm, I'm particularly interested in getting oral histories from this moment, right? So oral histories traditionally are usually, you know, so often they're recorded later with people sort of recollecting back. And right now we have this, this ability to, as you say, at the end of a shift, if you're a, you know, first responder, or somebody who's working frontline in a hospital, to at the end of your day, or even when you're just sitting in your car, when you're leaving work, speak into the voice memo in your phone for a minute. Um, and kind of having that immediacy is something, you know, we want to make sure we can get. Um, but we also don't want to sort of, A, assume a certain level of, of digital and kind of technical know-how. Um, and we also don't want to lock people out who don't have access to, you know, the same sorts of resources. So, um, so one way that the guide will be built out is, you know, give people some more concrete, let's say, screen grabs and names of apps that they might be able to put on their phone to record voice memos, look at whether some of the forms that we were looking at before um, will actually allow you to record kind of directly in within the submission itself. So you don't necessarily need to kind of go out to a to another, you know, another app or something. So we're trying to you know, build out some of that to give people a little more step-by-step um, to the different types of submissions. So again, whether that be, you know, about audio, about video, about photograph or written, and, um, and probably give some more kind of specific prompts within each of those different types of, um, of formats um, so we can give people some more ideas of, um, of kind of how they could express, you know, the experience. Um, there's been some great work done by um, the Vermont Folklife Center, um, who has a, one, of the, one of the projects actually um, that inspired me to want to start working on this is Vermont Folklife had actually um, announced something called Listening in Place. Uh, it was actually the first weekend after my first week of working from home, which was the week of March 16th. They had already announced that they were going to be doing that project, which was an, an oral history project, um, again, around documenting the experience, but also really around the idea of immediately sharing the experience. Um, and they've put some great guides up on their site. We've been in touch with them, and they're you know open to us using some of their guides and everything. So we're going to try to just build things out to make, make everything a little more user-friendly. What are your hopes for the archive? What, what do you, I mean, it's just, you just launched it just a little while ago. So what do you hope other than participation? Um, I think what I have been really pleased about already is that within a week we have a really wide geography of sort of contributions. Um, so we really are seeing sort of a wide scope of what Rhode Island is experiencing right now. Um, I would love to see that grow. Um, and I would love to see it represent a much more diverse sort of sense of what our actual state population looks like. Um, so one of the things we're in the midst of, um, we're not sure how to make it work, but we're working on trying to get the site available in several other languages, um, Spanish, Portuguese, and French, and potentially Arabic. Um, you know, there's some sort of technical issues that we're trying to work out on the end to see how do we make that happen. But, um, you know, I think one of the things we would love is to see people 
contributing in whatever their native language is. Um, you know, it doesn't have to be sort of sent through a filter of what people think it should be. You know, we really want to get the experience of how, how people are perceiving the situation themselves. Um, so if they're more comfortable speaking in a different language, then we would love to be able to support that. Um, if, you know, I think um, Becca was mentioning, for example, we're really interested in the viewpoint of young people. Um, so one of the pieces we've been working on is with the education departments at both RHS and PPL is thinking about how to create some lesson planning um, that can just be sent directly to educators or people doing homeschooling so that it's sort of um, use, utilizing this as a, a sort of catalyst for, for work that people are already doing. Um, you know, I think for me, it's really about trying to get a wide, diverse set of experiences documented, whether that's people literally, you know, essential workers on the front lines. What is that like versus the people who are now working from home and doing their part by staying isolated? Um, you know, what does it look like to be cooking or, you know, um, recreation? Like, what, how, what are the things that are shifting and changing? But but seeing what that looks like for somebody who lives in, you know, a dense urban environment versus out in rural Exeter, you know. I think what you both have created is very impressive. I look forward to adding my little bits to it and then talking it up for you so we can get some diverse contributions. I, I think this COVID-19 archive I did have one more question for you, which I should have asked in the, in the beginning. But you, when you mentioned the rapid response archive and how this has been the growth of the digital archive and that the Boston bombing, marathon bombing was one of, was it the first archive that was created or, or was that, were there something before that? Obviously, I, I, I don't think we could say it's the first. Yeah. Um, although I'm not sure who was. Yeah, I mean, the, you know, the kind of idea of rapid response collecting, I feel like started a little more with 9-11, but obviously we were in a very different digital space then. Mm -hmm. There have also been... Um, the Occupy movement the did a lot of rapid response. The Occupy movement did, and um, definitely Black, Black, Black Lives Matter movement um, different. I mean, there was a rapid response collection in Ferguson. There was another in Baltimore around Freddie Gray. Um, so yeah, more, um, small. Yeah. Nothing. They tend to, they tend to have come out, I think, related to, um, sort of individual events. Mm -hmm. Um, although the Schlesinger library has a me too digital yep. archive, um, which is sort of much, it's less, uh, Temporal, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, but they generally, I think, have come in response to specific events. Mm. Yeah. Well, ladies, thank you very much for joining me today. I think this is very exciting. I'll see what thank I can do. Thank you so much. Yeah, spread the word. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it on social media. Leave me a rating and a review. And if you know of a friend or family member who's also interested in family photographs, share this episode with them too. See you next time.
I'm thrilled to be offering something new. Photo Investigations. These collaborative one-on-one sessions look at your family photos. You and I meet to discuss your mystery images and find out how each clue and hint might contribute to your family history. And trust me, these images can reveal so much in your research. I have decades of experience in the photo, genealogy, and history industries. This is your chance to learn from me and discover the stories in your family images. You can find out more by going to MaureenTaylor.com and clicking on Family Photo Investigations.